Welcome to the morning community of Northridge Vineyard. Our deepest desire is that you will encounter Jesus as you listen in to our morning gathering. If you'd like to find out more about us, check out our website, northridge.org.au forward slash mornings. So Lord, we just thank you for the message that you've given Anna, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would fill her up, Lord. You would, you would give her uh, the words on her uh, that you've already given her, Lord. I just ask that they would... They would become spirit to us now, Lord, that they would flow into our hearts like a river. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Anna Harding. Um, I'm married to Tim, and together we have three children, Jonah and Millie, who are nine, and Lucy, who is five. Um, we've been part of this community in Northridge for about the last eight years I grew up in the idyllic and beautiful south coast town of Jeringong. And as the youngest of four children, I spent most of my childhood striving to keep up with my three older brothers. For as long as I remember, I've been part of a family who've known and who've loved the Lord. The church that I grew up in was a diverse and mottled group of people. The minister at this time, Laurie, had recently returned from being, a from being a missionary over in Papua New Guinea. As a child, I remember sitting transfixed, listening to his stories, trekking through the Papuan wilderness, bringing Jesus to the people there. Laurie was a man whose faith shone through at all times. And it wasn't long before he began making ripples and then waves within our small community. Not only was Laurie's passion for Jesus evident through his life, but he also had a profound ministry in um, prayer and deliverance. Within the South Coast, it doesn't take much to scratch beneath the surface and see the um, influence of New Age and the occult. Laurie was connected with many people who'd become involved in either the occult and new age and had led many of them to freedom through Jesus. Testimony time in our church was never dull. We heard many stories of powerful transformations from extreme darkness to the freedom that only Jesus could bring. I remember as a child watching all those around me at church and weighing up what I saw. My mother would often tell me, Christians weren't just those who were warming the pews in church. They were those who said yes to Jesus every day. Often she would say to me, just because a mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. To my childhood mind, this made sense. And I remember intently watching those people who looked as though they were living this thing out passionately. In my final year of primary school, I received probably my first personal challenge to take this thing seriously for myself. I went to a small Christian school in Wollongong, and my teacher at the time, Mr Holmes, I think aimed to have every single person in the class believing in Jesus by the time that the year was up. I remember clearly one day he sat us down as a class group, and he said to us, who here has a personal faith in Jesus. Put your hand up. A few brave hands rose up. 
Then he said, who here doesn't know Jesus yet? And a few more hands popped up. Lastly, he said, who here is playing it safe and sitting on the fence? A few pretty brave hands rose up. Mr. Holmes looked around at the class with fiery intensity and proclaimed, for those of you sitting on the fence, you may feel this is the safest place to be, but let me tell you, the devil owns the fence. (laughs) I think as we went home that day, we were all a little scared. (laughs) However, his point had been made. It was time to stop watching others express their love for Jesus. And it was time to start learning how I could walk this faith journey for myself. Finishing school was pretty momentous for me because it meant leaving the safety of my close-knit church community, my family, and moving to Sydney. For years, I'd been involved in music ministry, and so I decided to embark on training at Wesley Institute in music ministry. But as I studied at Wesley, God started to impress on my heart a verse from Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the master. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I spoke up. I'll go. Send me. I seemed to continually stumble across people who were involved in missions in the developing world. And my passion started to grow for being part of something bigger for God's kingdom. Over the next few years, I switched to studying primary education. I studied subjects about working within the developing world. I met my husband, Tim, and travelled on a short-term mission trip to Bangladesh. In 2005, Tim and I were married, and shortly after, we connected with the Baptist Missionary Society, now known as GIA, and began to train to work in the missions field. After a few months of praying and researching our options, we decided to go to Cambodia for a term of 18 months. The next year was consumed with training, visiting churches and support raising. John Piper aptly says, the strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. Before we could leave for Cambodia, we needed to raise financial support to cover all our living expenses while we were abroad. The large financial target seemed achievable at the beginning of the year. However, as the year crept on, we steadily began to reach our deadline for raising funds, and we still hadn't raised any money. We'd finally reached the point where we had to make an emergency phone call to the director of GIA. I remember this conversation vividly as we explored our plans B, C, D, and so on. What were we going to do? Here we were, ready in every other sense to go, yet we only had one weekend to raise all of our finances to go. During this time of stress... I remember each morning as I woke, the song, it's an old song, Jehovah Jireh would be the first thing that would come into my mind and it would persistently follow me throughout the day. Jehovah Jireh 
was the Old Testament was an Old Testament name for God, and it meant the Lord will provide. It was as though the Lord was reminding us he was bigger than our finances. He had this under control, and we just needed to trust. That weekend, miraculously, we raised every dollar, and all of a sudden we were set to go. While we're in Cambodia, Tim and I spent most of our time teaching in a school for missionary children called Hope School. Many third culture kids struggle to adapt to the lifestyle that their parents had chosen overseas. Life for families often was tough. During this season, Tim and I were really blessed to be able to support many families and the work that they were doing. We were supporting families who were living in the poorest Cambodian slums. We were supporting parents who were involved in rescuing children and women from sex slavery and parents who were training Cambodian youth who were at risk of exploitation. Through helping these third culture kids to adapt and thrive, we were helping these families to fulfil what God had placed on their hearts to do. During this time, I also became involved in helping a small NGO called the Sunshine Centre. Each week after finishing school, I'd walk down to the Sunshine Centre and teach English to some of the local children. Within Cambodia, many children are forced to stop their schooling early and to help earn money by picking up recyclables. These children were called the Agile. They would take these recyclables to recycling plants and get a really small amount of money for their findings. But even this small amount of money was significant for families who existed on the poverty line. The Sunshine Centre aimed to support families to keep their children in school. There is an ancient saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for the day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Often these families who are experiencing poverty found it really difficult to look long term. However, if their children were enabled to finish school, their prospects for sustained, safe and dignified work was increased. Although this was hard for the families in the short term, this was the way to break the vicious cycle of poverty. Throughout all of this time, God continued to speak to us of his faithfulness, often through really everyday experiences. While living in Cambodia, I developed a really deep fear of dogs. Um, unlike Australia, dogs in Cambodia were kept for the sole purpose of guarding property. Break-ins were not uncommon. So many of the families would mistreat dogs, often burning them on the nose or doing worse, in order to make them aggressive and effective in guarding their property. There was one particular road in our area where I frequently had encounters with aggressive dogs. And this one particular area was right on my way to the Sunshine Centre. I was terrified of walking down this road alone. One day as I walked to the Sunshine Centre, I remember coming to this dusty road and looking down it, and there was a dog right in the middle, and it looked like a horse. It was enormous. In a battle between this dog and me, I knew who would win. 
I stood there debating with myself whether I should turn and head home and started crying out to God for help. At this moment, a local moto driver, it was like a motorbike taxi driver, he turned up. This moto driver gestured that I should take a seat on the back of his moto. He'd take me the whole way to my destination. In very broken Khmer, I indicated I didn't have any money and I couldn't pay him to get there. The moto driver insisted that this was okay and he insisted that I should get on the back of his motorbike. That afternoon, while I was sitting on the back of that moto driver's bike, I was so grateful for the generosity of that moto driver and also for the faithfulness of God who had heard my cries. God had very practically spoken to me and let me know he was bigger than this fear. He was and is able to provide all our needs. Mission work in Cambodia was often hard. Working with people living in poverty came with its own unique challenges. One of the greatest challenges was presenting Jesus in a way that broke through both the hardship of poverty and the bondages of Buddhism. Many Cambodians in poverty would happily accept Jesus to go along their Buddhist beliefs. But it could be a challenge to introduce them to the God who loved them, the God who gives them freedom and new life, the one true God, without a whole lot of cultural and spiritual baggage coming along too. As a Buddhist country, most Cambodians had a deep awareness of the spiritual world. Each Cambodian home had a little spirit house where the family would make offerings each day to appease the spirits. And many Cambodians also carried around with them highly superstitious beliefs, um, which kept them in fear of the spiritual world. One night, Tim and I were unwinding after a long day at school. I think we were watching TV at the time, and um, we heard some unusual sounds outside of our gate, which caught our attention. We turned off the TV and wandered outside to see what was going on. A neighbour of ours who lived just across the road from us um, owned a stall at the local market in Sa Tultumpong. This night, as any, every other, she had packed up her stall, placed her money in her purse, hopped on the back of the motorbike that her son was driving and went home. However, that night, as they went home, they were followed by thieves. That night... The mother was shot and killed outside of our home. It took us a while to work out what was going on, but soon absolute chaos erupted in our street. This shooting rocked our neighbourhood. For a people who were bound by superstition, this was a really bad omen. I remember the next day, we watched from our rooftop as Buddhist monks wandered down the road. The monks were carrying a large metal urn filled with water. One by one, the people would come out and the monk would go through a ceremonial ritual of cleansing. It was impossible as we watched this not to think about a different type of water described by Jesus. 
Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. But anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I bring will be an artesian spring, gushing fountains of everlasting life. Cambodia is in desperate need of this water, water that cleanses and brings life, wholeness and freedom from darkness. And Jesus is moving in Cambodia. Our friend Sorida um, is one of the local believers in Cambodia and she has a genuine faith in Jesus. Sorida's mother uh, was a cleaner for an NGO when she first heard about Jesus. She brought her children to meet this person who told her about Jesus and one by one they all accepted him as the Lord and Saviour of their life. However, Sorida's father was not a believer. At this time there was civil conflict in Cambodia following the Khmer Rouge and her father was a soldier who was fighting out with the Cambodian army. Sorida and her family were terrified about what would happen when he came home and found that his family were believers. He was a highly superstitious man and was expecting that his family would be making offerings to the spirits for his safety every day. One day, Sorida's father did unexpectedly return home. They sought advice from their pastor. What should they do? How should they tell him that they had changed so much? Together they devised a plan. The pastor gave them a video about Jesus. They decided that at a particularly poignant moment, they would put it on and see what happened. To the family's amazement, their father was rapt. He watched as if in a trance. At the end, he opened up with his own story. One day he had been in his army unit when a man, a stranger, had approached him to warn that he should not proceed down the planned route. He had listened to this man and then watched as the rest of his soldiers continued. A short distance away, this truck hit a landmine and all of the soldiers were killed. In amazement, Sorodar's father exclaimed, that the man who had saved his life on that battlefield was the man playing Jesus on the video. There and then, Sorodar's father gave his life to Jesus. There are many stories of Jesus breaking through the darkness in Cambodia. Each day, more and more people come to know Jesus and the local church is becoming stronger and stronger. All too soon, our 18 months were over in Cambodia and it was time to come home. As we packed our bags to come back to Australia, we had no idea where God was going to lead us next. And life certainly took an unexpected turn. Within a few months of returning home, we found out that we were expecting not just one baby, but twins. This last season of parenthood has been a season of many joys but also of a lot of busyness. There are many days where it's easy to be lost within the chaos and busyness of life with young children. But throughout it all, God has been there and he has been faithful. 
Over the last nine years of parenting, I felt the Lord challenging me to pursue simplicity in life. Often life can so easily spiral out of control. And unfortunately for me, the first thing that suffers is the time that I can spend in quietness with God. More recently, I've been challenged to identify the essentials in life that I can't change, but then the non-essentials that just add noise and chaos to life. I've also been challenged to look for those things that are life-giving to my family and myself and distance myself from those non-essential things that just burden us down and create more noise. Step by step, we're learning how to simplify life. We definitely don't get it right all the time. But bit by bit, we're learning to be able to hear God's voice through the noise of everyday life. Early this year, I was struck by a fairly vivid memory from our time in Cambodia. One night, shortly after we'd bought our own motorbike, friends had invited us to have dinner at a local Cambodian spot called the Corn Huts. Um, This was on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. And it was only when we'd finished dinner and returned to our bike in the pitch dark that we realised our motorbike had quite a significant flaw to it. Our motorbike's headlights would only work when we accelerated The more we accelerated, the brighter the lights would become. To get back home, we needed to drive a long way through dark fields and unpaved dirt tracks. This was relatively easy in the sunlight, but terrifying now in the dark. Eventually, we did reach the lights of the city and made our way home safely. As we listen to God and say yes to him every day, Faith can sometimes look like risk. In the Old Testament, whenever we see people, um, where God leads them into something that requires risk, often these people would look back at all of the things that God had done for them first and they would remember the character of the God who was asking them to do it. They would trust an unknown outcome and an unknown future to a known God that Tim get out of the way and I drive. However, I knew my husband. I knew his character and I trusted he'd get us back home safely. As we navigate our own journey with the Lord, I pray we will remember the character of the God who leads us. I pray that we'll remember to look back at all the times that he has been faithful to us and know that in the end, He will lead us home. Jonathan, come on up. Can I just, can we just give another quick round of applause for Anna? Because that was absolutely awesome. Thank you so much. Lord God, I just thank you for this man. I thank you for the words you've given, Jonathan. Lord, I just ask that you give him boldness as he speaks now. And, uh, yeah, Holy Spirit, just guide him as he goes through in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to... Thanks, mate. You know what?
Okay, thanks. I brought these with me just in case the font gets a bit smaller halfway through. My story is one of learning to follow Jesus when life doesn't go the way I thought it would. And so that even when I felt a bit lost and very much confused, I guess I've still had this sense throughout the years that God has been with me and watching over me. But getting lost and disorientated and confused has meant that there have been quite significant shifts in my understanding of how God has looked after me and certainly his plan for my life. I work at St John of God in, at Burwood, which is a psychiatric hospital, and it's probably about 95 beds, so it's a fairly small hospital, and I coordinate the pastoral counselling team there. And last week I was asked to um, sit in on a group in the outpatient clinic. Um, they've, it's a fairly new group, and they've been talking about how faith and spirituality intersect, I guess, with their life and their lifestyle choices. And so because this theme has been coming up a few times now, the facilitator asked if I would step in and and sit in on the group. And so I sat there for about two and a half hours, and I think for the first hour I just listened. This is a, um, as I said, it's a fairly new group. They all suffer with, I guess, acute mental health struggles and all identify as LGBTIQ. And they shared stories of exclusion. They shared stories of struggling to hold on to the faith they grew up with. And they shared about how they have to hide parts of themselves because family and friends just don't understand them or the choices they make. They shared very openly of their shame. And as I sat there and listened to them, I just felt this overwhelming sense of this desire, this longing do you see me? And I reflected that back to them because throughout their narrative, they kept saying, they kept, it seemed as though they kept saying over and over again, do you see me? When God called me into ministry nearly 30 years ago now, I never would have imagined I'd be sitting in that room, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. The group pushed me to respond with, what do you mean by do you see me? And so I shared with them about Jesus, who so often spent time with people who felt unseen, who felt excluded, who felt a bit on the outer, and how, how one night he had dinner with a man called Simon, and a woman came up behind him, unseen, and anointed his feet with her tears and with oil. And Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus clearly did. And I want to be the man who sees people who feel a bit unseen. And I think that's for me, is what following Jesus is. And I found that when they feel seen, when they feel safe and they're able to be vulnerable and share, I guess, the longing of their heart, that's when healing starts to occur in their lives. My understanding of healing has changed a whole lot over the years as well. It has been. It called me into ministry when I was 23 years of age. It, was, it has been and still is one of the most significant moments of my life. I just spent three months working in Moscow and I was snowbound in a log cabin in Norway. It sounds very good, doesn't it? 
And I spent that night awake with God. We just talked all night. And God's voice that night almost seemed audible. I've never actually experienced a night like it since. Back then as a 23-year-old with a, I guess, a very sheltered and closed Christian upbringing, I thought I knew exactly how that would all play out. I had no idea. I, um, I guess growing up in the Salvation Army, I thought, well, I must become a Salvation Army officer. It made sense to me. And so I came back from Moscow and I said to my girlfriend, I'm going to be a Salvation Army officer. That conversation kind of went okay. But um, fast forward to 2004 and my wife and I are into our second appointment with the Salvation Army. In the Salvation Army, it's, it's kind of like a package deal where you have to do things together. So we trained together, we pastored a church together. We had two young boys and I thought life was fantastic. I was enjoying everything I was doing. And late, well, uh, late April 2004, school holidays, Amanda says to me, I just can't do this anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. And that really opened up this, I guess, a black hole of confusion for both of us. For Amanda, it was depression. And for me, I just didn't understand at all what God was up to. Within six weeks, we'd left the church and were living, the four of us were living with my parents. I remember being invited to a school reunion um, during that time. And I thought, there's just no way I'm going to that. You know, I'm at home living with my parents with no job. I have a whole lot of books, but nothing else. Um, Amanda was diagnosed with depression and we really didn't know what that meant or how she was going to get better. And so for me, I very much had to park my whole disappointment with God and confusion about what on earth God was up to. And we focused on Amanda getting better. And so we spent a great deal of time bonding as a family and in many ways they were the best years of our marriage. But that that nagging sense of I heard God clearly that night just didn't go away. But we we got on with life. Um, Looking back on it, I was pretty disappointed with God and probably very much disappointed with the Salvation Army as well. But I never took the time to unpack it and work it through. In 2007, so I've jumped forward a few years, Amanda, as she used to do, just went to the Red Cross to donate blood. And she was told that something was wrong and she had to ring her doctor straight away. And we had a couple of months of scans and tests and all that. And um, Amanda was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. Uh, We didn't get the, you know, go on a holiday talk or do something you've always planned, talk from the doctor. He said to us, there just won't be time. And the surgery and the chemotherapy was just horrendous. And um, six months later, I watched Amina take her last breath. I had friends around the world praying for her. Um, Many, many believing that she would be healed. But I didn't know what to believe. Um, There was never any indication that she would improve or get better and it kind of seemed like a bit of a whirlwind of everything getting worse. I had one man, I didn't even know, actually I don't know how he ended up in my lounge room, but he he said to me that unless I believed, Amanda wouldn't be healed. And um, yeah, I've had to do a bit of work on how God heals as well. 
so I guess um, I kind of started off saying a bit lost and disorientated and confused, but really I was, I was devastated. And some nights it felt as though a vice was squeezing my heart. It was that physically painful. And my whole body would shake with fear. The boys, Jacob and Eli, were nine and seven. And I was ah, just brokenhearted, I guess, is the, the easiest way to say it. That period is still very much a blur in my life. I ended up seeing a spiritual director. I had no idea what a spiritual director was or did. And um, I ended up going up to Canisius in Pimble. And I walked into his office and it was one massive window and three walls covered with books. So it felt like a great space to talk to someone in. And we just talked about books and movies he got me to read The Book Thief, which I thought was a pretty interesting choice, seeing its whole, you know, narrated by death. But um, we kind of got into the... We got into the hard stuff, and it became a very safe place for me to talk and to work things through. And a few months into that, he asked me the question that kind of just shifted everything. He said to me, what is it that you want? Uh, what is your heart's desire? And I had no idea. And so I, I took that question to God and I sat with God and I prayed about it and eventually I came up with the um, I want to love again I didn't immediately hop onto the dating scene the whole you know introvert thing kind of makes that a bit difficult at times anyway but I knew what I wanted I knew what my heart wanted uh, Michelle and I met at a social justice conference so it's not the kind of typical place to pick up anyway um, <laughs> But um, talking was really easy. And we just talked for hours that afternoon. And I went away thinking, well, I don't know what I was thinking, actually. But a few weeks later, I mustered up the courage to ask her out for a date. Um, ever the romantic, I brought my two sons with me. <laughs> and we had dinner at McDonald's and went to the IMAX theatre for a show. One of my sons needed to go to the toilet. We were stuck on the Harbour Bridge Western distributor in traffic and he was busting and um, thinking we had an emergency on our hands I reached into the glove box to find anything and I pulled out one of Amanda's sick bags and just one of those jolts in life where you're thinking oh you know how am I here how am I sitting in the car with another woman going on a date with two boys in the back um, the emergency was avoided we hopped out of the car on the Western distributor I have no idea how we found Michelle half an hour later, but um, we kind of raced through traffic and went to the toilet. And Michelle, I don't know how she got there anyway. I guess what I'm saying is if you ever need dating advice, don't come to me. <laughs> but Michelle falls in love. And we've been married for just over 10 years now. It's been wonderful and it's been extremely challenging, harder than I could possibly have imagined. Because I had, I had a few issues. I was broken and hurt and very much lost. And Michelle inherits two boys on the verge of adolescence. Which kind of got hard at times as well. And then we have Abby, who's been a, such a beautiful gift. And sometimes kind of a bit like the glue in our family. But um, I said, you know, Michelle fell in love because I think I fell in love, but I was, I was very guarded. I had kind of, I don't know how it happened, but I very much protected my heart in those first few years of marriage. And so healing for me has been a, 
very much a, a, a slow and gradual process. But I long for those nights like I had with God when I was 23. And I, I know that I need those kind of nights where I need to find quiet places to hear from God. Um, I thought I was doing, and in fact, probably the first seven years of our marriage, I've done a whole lot of work, seeing a spiritual director and, and all that kind of stuff, really pursuing healing. It's only um, three years ago, I think, on a, a men's retreat here at Northridge, and I was sitting in a paddock talking to God and some cows, and God very gently reminded me that my guard was still up. And so there was still more work to do, and God helped me that weekend to, lower, to finally lower the guard. And I think Michelle would say that a different husband came back that week. The image I found really helpful over the last few years comes from Psalm 131. But I've calmed and quietened my soul, like a weaned child at its mother's breast, like a weaned child is my soul within me. For me, it's a picture of quiet confidence, of proximity to the heart of God. It's trusting in the heart of God and me being content in life and not being anxious about my future. It sounds ideal and so I have to pursue those quiet places where that quiet of calm and quiet of heart really takes a hold of me. Sure, the usual suspects of uncertainty, fear and worry kind of grab a hold at times, but I have to keep coming back. I have to very intentionally pursue those quiet places. And it's there that I remember that God cares and loves for me. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Guys, why don't we quickly extend a hand to this man's direction and also, also to Anna as well. Lord, we just thank you for these guys for sharing this morning, for their vulnerability uh, and their openness to, to give us their story, Lord. Lord, we ask for your protection over both of them now, Lord. Lord, that you would, um, you would continue the healing where healing is needed. But Lord, we just thank you so much for their lives and the blessing that they've been to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.